0: Welcome to Never Again is Now, a podcast about anti-Semitism. I'm Evelyn Marcus, and in addition to being a psychologist, I'm featured in the documentary about anti-Semitism, Never Again is Now. I'm a Dutch Jew and a daughter of Holocaust survivors. In 2006, I immigrated to the United States because of the rising anti-Semitism in Europe.
1: I am Phyllis Zimbler Miller, the founder of the free nonfiction Holocaust theater project, Thin Edge of the Wedge, developed for students to educate about the Holocaust and to combat anti Semitism. I grew up in a small town in the Midwest, not with the Holocaust survivor community, but with people whose parents and grandparents had come at the turn of the previous century fleeing the Tsar. So in 1970, it was rather a shock when my husband and I were stationed with the US Army in Munich, Germany only 25 years after the end of World War II.
0: In this episode, we will discuss that the concerns of feminist scholars about the physical safety of minority groups (laughs) does not extend to Jewish women. We will discuss this with Dutch college student, Nikki Veldkamp. Nikki Veldkamp studies politics, psychology, law, and economics at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. She recently wrote a paper about the vulnerability of Jewish women that I thought was remarkable, and the Journal of Contemporary Antisemitism is now considering publishing it. Nikki, welcome back to our show.
2: Hi, thank you guys so much for having me again.
1: Nikki, you are currently a college student in Holland. Are there elements in your identity that make you feel, feel personally unsafe these days? Can you describe what forms of unsafe, unsafety you are speaking about?
2: Yeah, for sure. I, I think to start out with this question, um, I would say, I mean, this is going to relate a lot to what we're going to be talking about um, in general, but I would say that, yeah, I, there are kind of two aspects of my identity that would maybe possibly make me feel unsafe. I think unsafe is maybe sometimes a big word for it, but I do think it's relevant. Um, But my, the part of my identity that, you know, where I identify as a woman is definitely relevant in this sense. And to kind of explain that I mean, I'm a young college student, as you said, in um, Amsterdam, which is a pretty big city in the Netherlands. Um, A lot of nightlife, you know, a lot of people. Um, And as a a college student, I go out, I do fun things, but I'm always very aware of the fact that, you know, I'm I'm a, a young woman and I can be vulnerable in certain situations. And what I mean with that is if I'm traveling home alone at night, like I'm always very aware of my surroundings and I've talked to other female friends of mine who definitely experienced the same thing. So I think, you know, with your identity as a woman that there can be a certain feeling of unsafety if you are alone, especially at night, which is something that I've definitely thought about. But um, the other thing that I would also say in this sense is my identity as a Jewish person. Um, I, I don't feel it in my daily life as much, but I've definitely felt it in situations where I was either wearing my Hebrew necklace or a Chai necklace. Um, it's quite odd, but at times, I, I felt the need to maybe hide it in certain situations. And it's always hard to describe those. But um, that's also a part of my identity where I've kind of felt somewhat unsafe in certain situations, or you feel the need to kind of hide that part of yourself. So um, yeah, those are kind of two things where I've experienced that. And.
0: Also, in university, do you in college do you feel any, and um, uh, let's say maybe social unsafety there there um, coming from those identities you have? I think
2: um, for my identity as a woman, I I wouldn't say I feel like unsafe in university regarding that. Um, I think that's mostly what I was talking about with like being vulnerable and like um, alone situations. That's, that's more where that's at. But in regards to being Jewish, I think, um, yeah, I haven't, I wouldn't say I felt unsafe at university, but I've definitely felt not as comfortable showing that part of my identity, which I think is somewhat related to what what we're talking about here. Um, As I said, with like the Hebrew necklace, for example, or the chai. Um, I've I've added, I have had times where I felt the need to maybe hide that or not necessarily show that when I'm at university. So um, so yeah.
0: Okay. For our listeners, Chai uh, it's a Jewish uh, word means life, uh, and it's written in, in Hebrew letters and often word worn as a necklace. Um, you write about intersectionality. Uh, this term comes from critical race theory, um, uh, which is the dominant uh, intellectual movement these days. Um, can you explain to us what critical race theory says uh, in essence and what intersectionality is? And, and can you give us some examples please? Yeah, for
2: sure. So to start off with your first question, what what is critical race theory, or what does it really entail? Um, well, I think it's important to recognize that you know critical race theory kind of stems, or the way that I've been taught about it in university is that it kind of stems from this larger umbrella of critical theory. So um, you have other critical theories, such as you know a lot of feminist theories as well social constructivism. Those are larger theories that we also tend to use in political science and and critical race theory is one of the newer ones, I would say. Um, And critical race theory, you know, it it originated in the U.S., I think. Um, And what it really looks into is how, in essence, I would say like systems in our society, structures in our society are racialized. And what that really means is that you know, there are certain dynamics of race at play. So for example, I know critical race theory looks a lot at um, the legal system and how that can have certain impacts on different people of color. Um, so it's kind of looking into these dynamics of race in our general societal structures. Um, and this is originated from the US from what I know. And what's important to say here is, you know, right away from the top, intersectionality is key, I think, to this theory. Um, intersectionality is defined, or I would define it as an analytical concept, maybe, um, that recognizes that social identities such as race, for example, cross over when it comes to inequality or oppression. So you can't really separate your social identities in that sense, if you're being discriminated or oppressed. Identities such as race, gender, socioeconomic class, and sexuality, you know, on and on. Those are all identities that kind of influence your position in society and how people perceive you and in the end, how people also treat you. Um, So that's what that really is about. Um, And that also kind of relates to the concept that I mentioned earlier, which is social constructivism. Um, this is a really important theory in that it says that, you know, identities are socially constructed. So they're not something inherent to us, but it's something that we develop through our social interaction. So um, that's really kind of what I think the whole critical race theory and intersectionality is about.
0: But is intersectionality then in your case that you are a woman and Jewish or in somebody else's case that somebody's black and gay? Um, and isn't it just that both elements uh, add up to each other in 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 um, in 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 the amount of oppression or or discrimination, or is it more than just adding up the two? In- I think
2: it's I think it's more. It's a good question. I think it's more than adding up in a way. Um, I think you can see it that way. Where exactly, as you said, like for example my identity could be, um, it's not my full identity, but you could say my identity is being a woman and being Jewish. Um, But there's a lot of different other identities as well, uh, of course, that are also involved. But what you could say is that, I think what intersectionality really talks about is that those identities that you have, whether it's Jewish, woman, gay, um, heterosexual, those tend to interact with one another as well. So it's not just that you have both of them and they don't do anything, but if you are, for example, a Jewish woman, like I am, that that's going to have certain implications for you being a woman, but also being a Jew. Do you know what I mean? So there's an interaction between the different identities. It doesn't mean, I think, that all identities have to be inherently interacting all at the same time, but it can mean that there's this different interaction between different parts of who you are as um, as a social being. I think that's kind yeah. of what it is. Uh, uh,
0: for instance, as a Jewish woman, I uh, live in a culture where the religion, the mainstream religion says, or the, the traditional religion says that as a woman, I'm not equal to a man. Yeah. Or, that, or as a black gay person, I'm not only uh, experiencing oppression of gay people in general but also within my black community there is a specific kind of oppression of gays
2: yeah exactly i think i think that's also a really good example i think One example that I tend to talk about a lot in in regards to intersectionality is, for example, the glass ceiling metaphor. I don't know if you know what that is. Yeah, The glass
0: ceiling. Sure. Yeah. Oh,
2: yeah. The the glass ceiling is often an example taken by people that talk about intersectionality in the sense that it really means that um, specifically women, but also other marginalized groups, um, can be, you know, prevented from reaching certain positions of power on the basis of their identity. And in that sense, people would say, for example, that Black women, for example, in the United States, um, are, are hindered by this, by this glass ceiling on the basis that they are women, that they um, have certain obstacles by being women to reaching, you know, a higher position in academia, for example, but also on the basis that they're Black. So those two kind of both can hinder or create obstacles for them. Um, so I think the glass ceiling is a, is a nice example of that.
0: Okay.
1: Let's talk more about Jewish intersectionality, which is your special, um, interest And can you give us some examples of that?
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, what I'll try to do is kind of maybe talk you through what, you know, yeah, what I've discovered about this, um, concept. So really what I was interested in is, was seeing, you know, what is, what is the intersectionality of Judaism, exactly. So being Jewish. Um, and I did a lot of research on, in that sense, what is the connection between being Jewish and being a woman, and seeing what whether that has a certain intersectionality, for example, in the way that Black women have a certain intersectionality. intersectionality, um, And what I found is, you know, there's there's been a lot of research and a lot of investigation in academia on the, the overall um, gendering of antisemitism. And what I mean with that is, you know, they've seen throughout the Holocaust, for example, that women were disproportionately impacted by certain things. So women were disproportionately, um, uh, you know, rape was used as a weapon of violence against them. Um, they were essentialized on the basis of their um, reproductive capabilities by the Nazis. Um, so there, there was a lot of gender dynamics there at play towards specifically Jewish women. So there, we already kind of see this, you know, intersection happening between discriminating them on the basis of being a woman and discriminating them on the basis of being Jewish. So that that was what one of some of the previous history or research was talking about. But um, if we're talking, for example, also more general uh, current examples. A lot of literature or academia has also looked into, you know, these tropes that you have around Jewish women, for example. So in the United States, there's this trope in media, for example, that's called the American Jewish princess. And I think that's really interesting because that shows what it really means is that Jewish women can be portrayed as, you know, these rich, greedy, materialistic beings. And there's also, again, two kind of identities there at play. There's this perception at play of, oh, this person is Jewish and that's why they're automatically rich and therefore greedy for money possibly. But there's also this perception at play of them being a woman and being very materialistic and possibly manipulative. So that's been by academia, that's been kind of taken as an example of how you can see kind of this, um, at least what they say, this intersection of anti-Semitism and misogyny, so kind of a hatred or prejudice towards women. Um, so that's kind of what I found in my first findings.
0: Um, what have you discovered in the academic literature about Jewish female intersectionality, and why is this important?
2: Yeah, I mean, to it kind of adds on to what I was just saying, but more broadly the trends that I saw so when I was looking through all this you know existing literature and trying to find out what's been written about this what's been written about the possible intersectionality of anti-semitism and um and, and gender or misogyny in this case um you know I as I said I, I found that there was actually plenty of evidence to show that historically antisemitism has been intersectional in the past so to say there have been you know intersections of being both misogynistic and being anti-Semitic, for example, during the Holocaust. Um, And I think um, one of the authors that I quoted in my my paper, she she really explains it really well. Um, Her name is Stephanie Springorum. I can read the quote really quickly. She said that we should take a closer look at the entangled constructions of masculinity, femininity, and the Jew, because to paraphrase Joan Scott's famous dictum, Not only have representations of masculinity and femininity been invoked to mobilize constituencies, to tar enemies, to put groups and individuals in their place, but so have representations of Jewish men and women. Antisemitism is thus, like gender, a primary way of signifying power. And I think that that, you know, that's what I found through all the historical evidence. I found that both. Anti-Semitism, so a hatred towards Jews, and also this prejudice towards women, those interacting together have been used to invoke certain hierarchies of power. And that was very evident throughout all the research that's been done. And but that's a lot of that's a lot in the past, right? So I was also looking into what's happening currently nowadays in regards to this. Um and for that, I really found that there's also a lot of evidence and research out there on the fact that you know, antisemitism and specifically misogyny interact a lot on online cyberspaces. So you have these, you know, kind of the dark web websites um, where especially extremists, like right-wing extremists interact and kind of also where conspiracy theories take place. And there's a lot of intersectionality there at play too in regards to, you know, hating Jews as well as hating women. Um,
0: so- can you, can, I, I can, example, like, can you give an example, please? Please.
2: Yeah, so one of the one of the main um one of the main cyberspaces that they found and what where there's a lot of evidence on, they call it the manosphere. Um basically it's it's a collection of websites, blogs, um, online forums of mostly men um, that feel often it stems from them being um sexually frustrated. But they tend also towards very much right-wing extremist ideas, and they they found them to talk a lot about, you know, using a lot of conspiracy theories to talk about their hatred about Jews towards Jews, and then also bringing specifically Jewish women into that. So saying that you know Jewish women are at fault um, for inventing feminism and coming up with all of these crazy ideas. Yeah, it's it's really crazy. Um, so that's like a that's like a known sphere in on the internet where these people interact
0: and talk about this.
2: Um,
0: yeah, and what I understand is that also Jewish is being seen as as feminine. Is that correct? Yeah,
2: um, I mean historically, also that I think that points a lot to actually. Um, Historically, they found that in with, with an anti-Semitism, like even before the Holocaust, um, for example, in Germany, they found Jewish men to, they perceived them to be feminine. And that's why they perceived them to be less worthy, for example, of being in the army or being a citizen. So that's very interesting indeed, because that was like a, a common theme that came back throughout history already, where we see this gendering of anti-Semitism. Um, and I, this also definitely happens nowadays on the online forums, um, where they perceive Jewish men and Jewish women to have a certain type of femininity or
0: masculinity. Okay, and but um, you, I, you, I think you also discovered that uh, the intersectionality of, or or, or the, the the vulnerability of uh, Jewish minority women is not so much. Discussed in the feminist uh, scholarly and, uh, literature, is that correct? Yeah, this is correct.
2: Um, yeah, I can I can tell you a little bit about that, or what kind of my main finding was with all of this. Because I mean, you might think like, oh, there she just explained all this evidence for everything that's out there, and and that's true. But um, that was me putting a lot of the strings together and, and none of the, the first of all, none of the critical race theory or none of the feminist scholarship really, which, which are two theories that really use intersectionality a lot. Neither of those theories um, extend the concept of intersectionality towards Jews or towards anti-Semitism, which I think is super interesting. And that was very baffling to me regarding all the evidence that I found that there seems to actually be it was, it was super clear to me why this is an intersectional issue. And then I was very confused as to why this wasn't being addressed. Um, so that's actually what I kind of ended up researching. Like, why is this possibly not being addressed? Um, and I can dive a bit into that if you want, but maybe- please do. Um, yes,
0: please do. Why is it that uh, the feminist, uh, scholarly literature and and in re- critical race theory, literature is not addressing Jewish female internet intersectionality. Yeah, so it's it's
2: the answer is not simple, but I will try to explain it as as simply as possible. But I think it consists of kind of um, two things. So. First of all, one thing that I found in, in trying to find this answer, like why, why is this not being recognized, you know, by the feminist academia and, and critical race academia? Um, one thing I immediately found is that, you know, there there's a problem with the defining of semitism. So, and this is a lot to do with um, the perception of Israel, as well as the general perception of Jews as a race. So I think to kind of explain that, you know, the connection between Jews and Israel presents a very complex problem for people, they get kind of scared, and they don't really want to, you know, dive into that, because it's already so complex. And for a lot of people that presents a problem in regards to defining anti-Semitism, actually. So a lot of, or some of the literature that I read, it was actually saying, you know, one of the reasons why this might not be as addressed is because people have a hard time defining antisemitism in regards to that. So I think that's the first thing to recognize. And the second thing that's also connected to this is that people in general, and I've experienced this with my friends and people from university, people have a hard time um, perceiving what Jews actually are or or whether Jews are a race or whether they're a tribe, whether it's a religion. And this this ended up this is what ended me with my real finding, which is that I found that you know it really depends on the politics of the observer in regards to what they think Jews are. And let me kind of unpack that because that might sound a little bit abstract. But basically, um, what I mean to say is that depending on your political context and your and your view it will depend whether you perceive Jews to be a race or what type of race. Um, And for example, from the literature, as I said, what I found is through centuries of oppression, you know, Jews were constantly dehumanized. They were seen as inferior, abnormal in the Holocaust. They were anything but white, you know, especially during the Shoah. Um, And this is carried through in today's extreme cyberspaces, as I just talked about with the manosphere, where, you know, right-wing extremists perceive Jews to be anything but white. But on the other hand, if we're looking at um, specifically, you know, and this happens a lot with feminist scholarship and critical race theory, I would say, in regards to um, a lot of leftist scholarship, they, you know, almost perceive Jews to be this ultimate group of privilege. So a very different type of race almost you know it's it's not inferior to being white but it's almost like the ultimate white Um, and you know they perceive them to be socially economically the best off they they're separate from just being white they're so rich and we're going back to you know those stereotypes again Um, so i i found it really interesting to kind of discover that it really depends on the politics of the person that's looking at jews you know it depends on whether you perceive them to be kind of this ultimate privileged group. And in that sense, like, you know, almost too white or the complete other side, which is what we saw during the Holocaust and what we still see with right-wing extremists today. So there's this problem here of how we perceive Jews to be, and that's kind of what's leaving
0: Jewish women behind as well. So, So if I understand you correctly, um the extreme right doesn't see jews as white the hard left sees jews as privileged and when you're privileged you're automatically categorized as white um and when you're white you cannot be oppressed exactly discriminated is that is that the reasoning you're- i think yeah, I think that's where we're
2: going. The idea is that um, if, if, you, if you perceive Jews to be, you know, a, a very privileged, well-off group, like white people, or in this case, sometimes even more privileged than just white people, um, you, exactly, they, they, they can't be oppressed. They can't be discriminated against because they are the ones that are, in that sense, creating the system of oppression. Right. So there's this conflict there, right?
0: so th- this is all in the model of the world consisting of two categories basically oppressors and oppressed so if you are privileged you're automatically an oppressor yeah so, i would say that. okay so so and and how does that get to feminist scholarly activity is are all feminist scholars on the on the left
2: yeah, I have to be careful with that one, obviously, because definitely not all feminist scholars are, or I I would not want to assume that they're all on the complete Christina, left
0: side. Christina Hoff Summers is not, for instance.
2: Yeah, exactly. So there's obviously definitely women that, um, or feminist scholars that aren't that. But I think you know that 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 still brings the question because I I was looking through the existing feminist literature and. I think maybe part of, or I don't wanna say part of, let me phrase this a different way. I think there's a power to, it brings us back to the concept of intersectionality. There's a power, what I find very powerful about intersectionality is that it talks about, as I said, this kind of fusing of identities and that you can't really just address you know, discrimination or oppression or inequality on the basis of one identity. They, they're inherently linked through our social interactions. In one person, yeah. I think that's very, I think that's a very powerful analytical tool. But what's also difficult with that, and what kind of brings an answer to your question, is that, you know, critical race theory, and I think also feminist, a lot of feminist scholarship that uses intersectionality say that when you are addressing oppression with the tool of intersectionality, you know, thinking of I'm addressing all the different types of identities that are being oppressed, you need to address them all at once. And what I'm trying to say with that is, you know, there, that kind of creates a a conflict there because if then Jews are not considered, are considered white in that sense or privileged, you can't, you, you, you kind of have an inner conflict with who you're trying to, you know, save or who you're trying to, do you know where I'm kind of grabbing at?
1: I'm a little confused. And as someone who's the oldest on this uh, talk and experienced lots of, um, let's call it what it was, oppression of women. Uh, when I went to Wharton to get an MBA, I was one our, they were just starting to take women. There weren't that many women in our classes. No matter even if Jews are privileged, if they're female Jews, they still have a huge glass ceiling in terms of perception by many people. So I'm a little confused (laughs) about how feminist scholars, even if they decide to say, oh, Jews are privileged, cannot then consider what it means for a female Jew who still has oppression of being a woman.
2: I mean, I, I obviously don't think that way. So I also have a hard time understanding that in that sense, because I also after researching this, and as I said, after seeing in what way, you know, Jewish women are discriminated against, I also don't understand how it it can't be recognized. But I think what it stems from, or why people have a hard time, specifically feminist scholars and critical race theorists, why they have a hard time recognizing it has to do with you know as i said kind of the pol- the political observation of being jewish so how whether they perceive jews to be as evelyn said white and in that sense a, an oppressor in that sense that you can't really save the oppressor if you know what i mean so that's what i'm trying to say with it depends on the politics of the observer and how they perceive jews to be white or non-white or as a race
1: Okay. When you say save the oppressor, you I think you're saying be on the side of the oppressor. Is that what we're saying here?
2: No, that's not what I was saying. <laughs> um, I meant, um, I was talking in terms of like, um, if we're going to save the um, the oppressed, as in like save the oppressed from being oppressed. But now like I'm getting lost in my thought as well because I was not... Yeah, I don't really remember exactly what I was referring okay. to. In that sense, okay, but that's not yeah.
1: Okay, it's we will all concede this is a difficult topic for many reasons, including. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I think it's fabulous what you've done. What What my question is, what can do you have any advice for college students and others who maybe come up against this? Literally, I can see someone saying, literally. Applying for a position and someone saying, "Well, we're only considering minorities and Jews don't count, or you know, women don't count." I mean, do you have any advice for, for everyday navigating through this morass?
2: Yeah, I mean, breaking through the actual glass ceiling is <laughs> very difficult. I don't know if I have the perfect advice for that. I think, I think what I would say um, in regards to what you can do, you know, as being at university or being at college and also like often being educated in these types of theories I think it's important to stay critical of the critical theories <laughs> that we're talking about um so I I would say that's like at this moment that's my main thing to all individual college students out there is to carry that conversation through so to not not also just in general obviously if you're in academia you should never just accept what you're reading you should always somewhat stay critical and in this sense I think it's extremely important if we're talking about, you know, the discrimination or oppression of people to indeed consider everyone and not just pick and choose, um, because that's kind of the point, right, of the whole term. Um, so I think the most important thing is to, in that sense, stay critical and have the conversation. I know a lot of people are maybe afraid to challenge something or to have that conversation at university, but it. It it'll do a lot. I've noticed that it it can make a lot a, a big change, so to say.
0: Yeah, so. our, yeah. For for, for instance, uh, your generation, uh, your generation after me. But so your grandparents, my parents, were Holocaust survivors. Um, we we know people, many people of that generation who lost their whole family, right? came back if they had all survived they survived alone um so there was genocide going on in their in their generation um and it seems that that is not an element being acknowledged so much in critical race theory yeah but, exactly right? the, the the genocide against the Jews and the oppression before that and after that, is is not so much a topic in critical race theory, and I think that brings us also to Whoopi Goldberg saying um, the Holocaust was not racism, which is ridiculous to say, but I think it comes from that from that theoretical framework.
2: Exactly. I think part of the problem of it is, and that that's exactly what you, with the example you gave of Whoopi Goldberg, that's what I'm kind of trying to point out is that, you know, it, it, it really depends on how Jews are perceived to be. She was saying, you know, Jews are just another group of white people and therefore it's not racism. That's exactly the problem, right? Like, and it's just interesting to note when you think about that, you know, you have those types of people, which, I've seen are often more on the left spectrum, um, but you have the right wing, especially the extreme right wing, who will view them in a complete different way. So it's just super interesting and confusing at the same time to see that happening. And right,
0: and we also know the stories of Jews who were in hiding during the Holocaust, uh, um, children who were in, Jewish children who were in hiding, staying with non-Jewish families. They had to dye their hair blonde if they had dark hair. They 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 could uh, families would only uh, adopt them during the Holocaust if if they would not have too many so-called Jewish features in their in their face. So there there was a lot of um, physical. how do you say, physical elements that were considered Jewish uh, by the Germans. Um, So that's, and and they saw the Jews as a race for sure. Yep.
1: Do you have any last thoughts, Nixie, that you'd like to share with us to help us understand any more or what we can do again to push back against this um, misunderstanding about what you Jews are.
2: I, yeah, I just want to end on, on a similar note and say, I think it's important to be critical of these mainstream ideas that we have, how useful they might be and how much I, as I said, I, I think intersectionality, a term like intersectionality, which has become very mainstream is very useful. We should be, remain critical of those and we should make sure that we don't leave behind other groups and in that sense, all human beings. I would just like to say, um, I think that's important to end with.
1: Thank you, Nikki. This has really been very, very interesting. And I wanna thank our listeners for listening. Also for any of you who have not yet seen Evelyn Marcus's documentary, Never Again Is Now, do see it, you can see it on Amazon and YouTube. You can find out more about my free nonfiction Holocaust theater project at thinedgeofthewedge.com. And for everyone, whenever you can, without putting yourself in physical harm, speak up against anti-Semitism and hate.